Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be tonight. And, uh, you know, so over the past several weeks, we have been doing a series through the Gospel of Mark. And in particular, when we talk about looking in the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at, okay, who is this Jesus, right? Who is it that Jesus says that he is? And I kind of gave you that, uh, that illustration of, of the game Guess Who, you remember, where, you know, it's kind of talking, all right, you like explain these characteristics, you got to like, figure out who the person is. And, and this idea of how a lot of people proclaim that they have faith in Jesus, but ultimately when they start to describe this Jesus that they have their faith in, that the Jesus that they believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible, and ultimately is not a Jesus that it can actually save, right? And who Jesus is, is very, very important when we talk about we're placing our faith and our salvation in him, right? That, that, that is, that's really, really important things to kind of focus on. So we've been talking about this idea of who is Jesus, and then this past weekend, we talked, we really, as a church, and really churches across the globe have really focused in on this idea of, okay, what is the work that Jesus has done? Right? We talk about who is Jesus, but then this weekend was, man, what's the big work that Jesus has done? Ultimately, the fact that he died on the cross for our sins, and the fact that he rose again three days later. Right? That's what we celebrate this past weekend with Easter. The entire focal point of the Christian faith pivots on that point. It pivots on the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul puts it perfectly in 1 Corinthians 15. Where he says this, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep are, uh, in Christ have perished, and if, if in Christ we have no hope, sorry, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Right? Now it's important for us to understand something, it's this, and it's this, that as a Christian, you never grow past the truth that I just shared with you. Okay? We talk about the gospel. We talk about the good news that, that Jesus has lived the life that we could not live. He lived that perfect life. He died on the cross in our place. He rose again three days later. And because of that, we can be redeemed, right? We can be restored to a right relationship with God. That there is never a point in your Christian life, I do not care how mature you get, how many Bible verses you memorize, there is never a point where you grow past that. You with me? There's never a point where you grow past that point. See, the gospel of Jesus is something that you continually grow in all of the more you dive deeper into it. Right, when I was, so I did, and I've given this illustration a bajillion times, so if you've heard it before, just roll with me. Right, but I, I took, uh, I took uh, Kenpo Karate from in high school all the way through a little bit of college, and then I had to get a job, and I got to stop, right? Uh, but I did that, and one thing that my instructor told me is he said that a black belt is simply somebody who has mastered their basics, right? And that as a black belt, it doesn't matter how advanced you get in, uh, in like the ranking of your belt, it doesn't matter how advanced your techniques get, you never move past the basics of your footwork, the basics of basic in, uh, blocks and different things like that. Like the, everything that you do, all the complex things are built upon the basics and the fundamentals. And when it comes to the gospel, that we never grow past it, we never disregard it, but we continually dive deeper into it. You begin to start studying. See, because uh, a lot of people think this, and this is what many people are guilty of doing. They look at the gospel as the starting line. They look at the gospel as the starting line. They, they say, okay, well, once you understand this, once you understand how you're saved, then you can start to move on to deeper things. Now you, you're free to pursue other deeper topics. You can begin to start studying more applicable aspects of Christianity, things that apply more to your life. There's several problems with this. The first one is this, is that to assume 
that you understand the fullness of the gospel because you can recite a few basic truths about it is the height of ignorance. To say that you fully understand the gospel just because you can recite some things about it is the, is the epitome of not really knowing it. See, the gospel is the definition of depth. You do not get deeper than that. You can tell how much a person doesn't understand the gospel based on how quickly they try to move past it. Whether it's learning the depth of your sin or the depth of his mercy and grace or it's understanding the goodness of his sovereignty and the wisdom of how he applies salvation to us or, or even the Holy Spirit's role in making us more like Jesus at, once we're saved, right? Once our salvation is secure, right? There's always more to learn and there's always more to love about God when it comes to studying the gospel. The second problem is this, is that all application, all life application that does not flow from a knowledge and love of the gospel is bad application. You with me? We talk about sermons that help with your mental health or, or sermons that help with, hey, five steps to be happy or whatever and all these different things. If those don't first and foremost flow out of the gospel, then they're bad applications. You see, it is only because of the freedom that I have in the gospel, in Jesus, that I can be able to apply anything. If you don't see how the gospel applies to your job, your school, your relationships, your mental health, how you wake up and how you go to bed, then that is proof that you need to grow in your understanding of it. See, the gospel is not the diving board into the pool of the Christian life. The gospel is the diving board that gets you started. It is the water that you're immersed in once you jump in, and it's the air you breathe when you can't hold your breath anymore. The gospel is everything to the Christian. George Whitfield is quoted as saying this, is that other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. So our goal when we're studying Romans, right, if you've been with us when we started Romans, Romans is like the explanation of the gospel. It is, it is Paul just explaining to the church in Rome, this is how we are saved. This is why we need salvation. This is what God, Christ has done to win our salvation. This is how we receive salvation. And this is how God is sovereign in salvation. And this is how salvation plays out in the life of a Christian. It is about the gospel. It is about how we are saved. So our goal when we're studying Romans is not to seek to confirm what we think we already know. Our goal is to not simply just add head knowledge. Right? It, it, it's not about, okay, I can use the word superlapsarianism in a conversation and use it correctly. Who cares? Right? It's about growing in our love for God because we we're growing in our understanding of his love for us. You with me? Does this make sense? Anybody alive? Does this make sense? All right. Paul Washer in his book, the, uh, what is the name of the book that we started, Finuka? It's the, huh? What's the name of the book we started? The Pre-Incarnate Christ. Okay, whew, man. All right. In his book, The Pre-Incarnate Christ, it says this. It says, true, uh, true exposition or explanation, right, teaching of the gospel is not less than an intellectual endeavor, but it is so much more. Now listen to this. What is the goal? What's the goal of studying the gospel? What's the goal of teaching the gospel? Its goal is that the mind might be engaged in great thoughts of God, 
the heart might be inflamed with love for God, the body might be animated in service to God, and that the lips might be consecrated for the praise of God. That the gospel has a purpose in the life of the non-believer and in the life of the believer. Over the past several months in the book of Romans, we've been looking at the gospel and, and how it is that we have been saved, right? Why we need salvation, how we receive it, and all these different things. And Romans 8 is widely regarded as probably one of the most powerful chapters in all of the Bible. Right, now, that, now all scripture is God-breathed, right? But if we were going to say, man, there's just one chapter that is, man, like, if you're ever in a down time, if you're ever discouraged, you're struggling, if you want a good chapter to read, read Romans 8. If you ever wanted to commit a chapter to memory, memorize Romans chapter 8. It opens with what we're going to talk about tonight, this idea that there is no condemnation, and it ends with the fact that there is no separation. It is the definition of encouragement to the Christian, and it is the fuel to keep going. And with that, I ask you this question, is when you are at your lowest, what drives you to keep going? Right? When you're at your lowest point, is that my phone? That is my phone. No, that's your phone. Adam, that's your son's phone. <laughs> right? I ask you this question, right? This idea of, man, when you're at your lowest, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that encourages you? What is it that pushes you to wake up every day when your parents are going through a divorce? What is it that encourages you to go to school or to come here when you feel like you have no friends? What is it that motivates you at your lowest point? See, we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I want to, we're just going to read the first few verses here. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we're going to see two things when we talk about what, is it, what does this salvation mean? Man, what are the practical applications of the fact that we are saved? First one is this, is that we are freed from sin. If Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, then Romans 8.1 is the greatest verse of the greatest chapter. The truth that is shouted here should ring in the mind of every single Christian for the rest of their lives. It is this, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 begins with that wonderful word, therefore. If you've been with us for 30 seconds, you've probably heard me say this, is that when you see the word therefore in your Bible, you should go back and see what it's there for, right? The word therefore is Paul, it's, it's, it's clearly Paul's way of saying, hey, what I'm about to say is coming out of what I have just said, right? So if you're going to study a verse that starts with therefore without studying the verse that comes before it, then you really didn't study the verse very well. 
So therefore, okay, well, what is he talking about? Well, ultimately, he's connecting what he's been talking about for the past seven chapters, and that is the fact that we are in need of a Savior, and, and Jesus is that Savior. He died on the cross, and, and, and how all of these wonderful things, like we talk about all right, how it is that we are saved. But I think there's even more to this. I think that really that it's directly connecting back to what Paul has just talked about in Romans chapter 7. And if you don't know it's in Romans chapter 7, that's okay. I got you, okay? See, Paul's letter to the church in Rome is exhaustively explaining the gospel, how we're saved, all of these different things. And then when we get to chapter 7, Paul really describes the daily experience of a Christian. The daily experience of a Christian, he puts it this way, is that because we've been saved and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a desire within every Christian to please God. You with me? There is, there is a desire in every Christian to please God, but there is another desire to please the self. There is a desire to please God. Like, I, I want to worship God. I, I want to obey God. I, I want to run from sin. And then there is another part of us that because we are sinners that says, no, I want to rebel against God. I want sin. I don't want God. And there's this constant struggle. And Paul talks about this struggle in Romans 7. Where he says, like, the things that I do not want to do, I keep doing them. And the things I don't want to do, or the things I do want to do, I don't do them. And, man, like, I'm in this constant conflict, this constant struggle. The, the struggle that Paul is having here is the reality of every single Christian. Every Christian in this room, including myself. See, we're given a new heart, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we are saved. And with, this new, with the Spirit that God has put within us comes new desires. Right? We want to know God, and we want to love Him, we want to please Him, we want to serve Him, we want to turn away from sin. However, our sinful flesh hates these things. This is why, like, you, you want to read your Bible, but at the same time, you don't. Right? You want to worship, at the same time, you don't. You want to pray, but at the same time, you don't. It's like this, it's like whenever you take time to really just, you know what, you and the Lord, read your Bible and pray, you just feel really good afterwards, don't you? But why is it that if you know it, you feel good afterwards, why is it so hard to do it again? It's because there's that conflict, right? There's that struggle. And perhaps as I'm saying this, like, this is something that you can relate to. You're like, Mike, like, I feel that. Right? You, you can relate with what I'm talking about. Maybe there's, this is where you find yourself tonight. Maybe you're not even here because you want to be here. Right? You're like, man, this is where I am. You're, you're wrestling with this conflict, and ultimately, you're living in discouragement because you feel like you're not the Christian that you should be. Right? You, when, when it comes to studying the Bible, you don't do it because you just feel, you just feel discouraged. You feel like, man, I... I Man, I just feel bad. I, I'm not the Christian I should be. And you live in this, dis, this discouragement and this depression almost. You see, you know your sins. You see your sins. And you hate your sins. But because you desire, you, part of you for some reason still desires to do them, you're in your hatred for your sin, you end up, actually end up hating yourself. And this is where Romans 8, 1 is the warm light that shines into the cold darkness of our doubts and our accusations. It says that if you are in Christ, in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this just almost self-hatred because of your sin, understand this, that in Christ, there is no condemnation. 
When I say condemnation, when I say condemn, I think of this idea of the Pirates of the Caribbean. You guys ever seen the, these movies? No? What in the world? All right, what are you guys, like six? All right, no, I'm kidding. Uh, right, Pirates of the Caribbean. There's a scene in, I think it's the second movie, where, uh, second or third movie, I don't remember, but these, where basically these pirates are walking up and they're about to be executed. They're, thank you, right? I knew my Disney friends would, would help me out, right? They're walking up and they're about to be executed. They're about to be hanged because of their piracy. And you just see they're just walking up in chains. Even though they're still alive, they might as well just be dead already. Because they are about to be sent, they have been sentenced to death for their crimes. And now they're about to experience the result of their actions. You see, the discouragement of chapter 7 is relieved by the good news of chapter 8, that there is no condemnation. We are not condemned anymore. What does this mean practically? It means this, that if God declares no condemnation, you should not condemn yourself. Like, be encouraged. This is, this is the goal, right? Like, if God says there is no condemnation, you should not condemn yourself. I see this all the time, right? There's people who claim to have freedom in Christ. They claim to have their sins forgiven, but they live as slaves to their guilt. They live as slaves to their guilt, their shame. Many of you in this room, this is where you find yourself. This is where you are. You're chained to the shame and the regret of your past decisions. Even though you'll claim that G Jesus has saved you. You'll claim that God is good and that you have freedom in Christ, but you don't experience it. You beat yourself up over the fact that you wrestle with sin. You question God's forgiveness because you question your own faithfulness. But let me tell you something, that God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on your faithfulness to him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, let me speak to some of the people in the room that need to hear this, okay? There are many of you in this room that you have placed your faith in the person and the work of Jesus, that you are Christians, and you are depressed over your current struggles with sin. You struggle to sing the songs, right? Like, there's nothing better than you. Or, Jesus, I need you. And you struggle to do so with a clear conscience because all you can think about is the sin that you did earlier this afternoon. Or you know that you should go to God in prayer, but there's just this shame and this guilt that you carry, and you're like, you know what, I just can't. Here's the question, is why do you feel like that? Why do you feel like that? You feel ashamed to come to God because you feel the weight of your sins, and rather than trust in the grace of Jesus, you run from him in the midst of your shame. And the question is why, and here's the reason, is because, because while Scripture assures you, Satan accuses you. And it is so easy to listen to the accusations of the devil over the assurances of the gospel. Right, I'll say that again, is that while, while Scripture assures you, Satan accuses you, and it's so easy to listen to the accusations of the devil over the assurances of the gospel. 
You see, the name Satan literally means the accuser. And I want to be clear, I also want us to be clear. Just because you're made aware of sin doesn't mean that that's always Satan. One of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit is to make us aware of our sin. So here's the question. How do you tell the difference? How can I tell the difference between Satan's accusations and the Holy Spirit's convictions? Well, here's a few ways. Satan accuses you and tells you to run from Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts you and tells you to run to Jesus. Satan shows you your sin and tells you that God couldn't possibly love you. God shows you your sin and tells you that he loves you anyway. Satan shows you your sin and tells you that you are too far gone for grace. God shows you your sin and tells you that there is no sin more powerful than his grace. Satan shows you your sin and points you back to yourself. God shows you your sin and he points you to the cross. While Satan accuses you, Jesus advocates for you. While Satan tears you down, Jesus lifts you up. While Satan reminds you of your failings, Jesus says that I have forgiven you and I remember your sins no more. While Satan makes you feel like you can't escape your past, Jesus says that I have separated from your sins and I, rem as I remember them as, uh, no more and I separated you from them as the east is from the west. While Satan points at you and says condemnation, Jesus points at his nail-scarred hands and says no condemnation. That's the difference. There is a freedom that the Christian must walk in. And so many, especially teenagers, do not walk in this freedom. And it's not because they don't genuinely believe. It's because they don't fully understand just how powerful the cross is. And here's the thing, is that we're not saved because of how much we know. Praise the Lord. We're not saved because we can fully articulate the, 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 the doctrines of justification. We're saved because we place imperfect faith in a perfect Savior. But as you grow in your relationship with God, as you mature, and as you spend year after year with Jesus, you begin to grow in your understanding of just how magnificent His gift of salvation is. There's a lot of things in my life that I, do, that I did not appreciate when I had them, that if I had them now, I would have greatly appreciated them. I'll give you an example. When I was young and I was in elementary school, this is a public school thing, so I know, you know, <laughs> I'm a crazy guy, but <laughs> just kidding. I, that's right, it's the word. Uh, but in public school, there was this time that was called nap time. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right. Now, and here's what it was. It, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, like you had like a 10th grader taking a nap. No, that was, um, well, a lot of 10th graders take naps, but it wasn't, they weren't supposed to. Right? But this idea of ultimately, like when you were like in preschool or kindergarten, maybe even first grade if you're crazy, there's a time where, hey, like we have nap time. And I remember I hated nap time. Right? I loathed nap time. I despised nap time with a fiery passion because I did not want to nap. And I will tell you this, is that if I had nap time, in the middle of my work schedule, praise the Lord, right? And I, and I despise myself, and I'm shameful and guilt-ridden that I did not appreciate nap time when I was eight, or however old I was, I don't know. Right, man, it's like, why did I not appreciate that? 
And I want you to understand something, guys. This is the same way with the gospel, is that when you've been saved and you grow in your understanding of what that means, you're like, man, I wish I would have known this when I first got saved. I wish I would have known this when I first said yes to Jesus. I wish I would have known this because I would have saved myself so much guilt, so much regret, so much heartache. There's freedom that we have as Christians. And here's the thing, that Satan will do one of two things to you. He will either minimize your view of your sin, or he will minimize your view of your God. Please hear me out, guys. Do not put a period on your life where God has put a comma. And do not say that you are condemned when Jesus says you are not. Now, there's something else that we need to make very clear. It's very important to the text. It's this, that this assurance is only for those that are in Christ. Which means that we can take what we've just learned and we can understand that the opposite is also true. That if there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we can also understand that there is now only condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. There's no way around it, right? If you are not in Christ, you stand condemned. If you are not in Christ and you are not walking uh, according to the Spirit, if you are not in Christ Jesus and you are walking according to the flesh, then you have not escaped condemnation. You may think you have, but you have not. Statistics are true. One of every one person dies. You can't escape it. We heard last week of a middle school student that died. We all think that we have so much time. See, there's only two types of people in this world. There's those who are in Christ and those who are not. And this verse in all the scripture testifies that God has wrath and judgment for one and grace and forgiveness for the other. See, this verse does not simply say there is no condemnation. It says says that there is no condemnation, and then it says who that is true for. And here's the question you have to ask yourself. Is that true for you? Is there condemnation for you or not? And how do we know that? It's, are you in Christ or not? Here's the question. Is what does it mean, then, to be in Christ? When Paul says this, he's asserting that there is a spiritual union between, the, between Jesus and the believer at the moment of salvation. That there is a union that is not separable. We see this expressed often as Christ being in the person, right? Christ being in the believer. And here we see it as the believer being in Christ. Christ in the believer happens by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 1.13, 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, Ezekiel 36.27, 2 Timothy 1.14. And you can go on and on and on and on. It talks about this idea that the Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. So how is it that we are in Christ? So the Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ through faith. See, this talked about in John 17 when Jesus is praying. He says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, may be, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Skip a few verses. He says, I made you known to them, in, uh, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, Jesus, in the same prayer, talks about them being in him and him being in them. See, there's a supernatural union between Jesus and his bride, the church. And this is why marriage illustrates the gospel. This is why you should take seriously the person you marry. And in so doing, you should take seriously the people you date. See, and this is also why the sin of the unbeliever is not atoned for while the sin of the unbeliever, or sorry, while the sin of the believer is. Because when we are united with Christ, I want you to put your thinking caps on with me for just a second, because if you can roll with me, this should be helpful for you. When we are united with Christ, we are united with him in his death, Romans 6. See, my sins were atoned for in, the, in his death on the cross be, uh, because my faith, right? He took on my sins when he took on the cross. And because I am united with him, my sins were put to death on that cross alongside him. See, my sins were nailed to the cross because the one I am united to by faith was nailed to the cross in my place. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the, uh, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Understand this, that for the unbeliever, judgment day is ahead of them. For the believer, judgment day is behind them. See, all sin is judged. All sin is, has the wrath of God poured out onto it. And all sin is paid for. The question is this. Will it be paid for by the sinner, or was it paid for by Jesus? See, the, the reason the Father does not condemn the believer is because he does not condemn Jesus. That's why. See, there's a union between the believer and Jesus that is inseparable. And for the father to reject you would mean that he would have to reject his son. You see, you can, you can come to God in prayer and worship confidently because you know that he has not rejected Jesus. So even in your moments where as a Christian you struggle and you feel shame and you feel guilt because of the things that you've done and you don't know what you can do, you don't know, you're like, man, I'm unworthy. Here's the thing. He hasn't rejected Jesus, so he will not reject you. And here's the question. How do we know that he has not rejected Jesus? Because the grave is empty. That's how we know. See, the empty grave was the seal of approval on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. See, if Jesus does not rise from the dead, then the cross does not mean anything. It's like this. So I used to say when I was in college or high school, but even now, is that whenever I swipe my card to pay for something, I get nervous. Even if I know there's money in the bank, I get nervous. Because as it says processing, I'm like, this can go one of two ways, right? And just the feeling of satisfaction when you hear the receipt being printed, you're just like, mm, we're good to go, boys. Or when it says approved, because here's the thing. If I swipe my card and it does not say approved, it doesn't matter how many times I swipe the card. But if I swipe that card and it says approved, what it means is that the payment was successful. 
Now I want you to understand that the empty grave is the receipt on the cross. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the sign that says approved on Jesus' payment. And because the grave is empty, we know that Jesus was not rejected. And because Jesus is not rejected, I am not either. See, the empty grave is the seal of approval on Jesus' sacrifice. And because of that, it is the seal of approval on me as well. Without the resurrection, the cross does not mean anything. But because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. So here's the logical question, and this is how we're going to close, is how do I know if I'm in Christ? We said, what does it mean to be in Christ? But how do I know if, I'm in, if I am? Well, the first point was we're freed from sin. The second point is this, that we're freed to life. See, what you're saved to is just as important as what you're saved from. Paul goes on to explain how it, how it is that we have been set free. And he goes on to these next verses. He talks about, you know, how, the, how for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. See, the evidence of the person that has been freed from the guilt of sin is someone that demonstrates freedom from the power of sin. Because the Christian has been united with Jesus, because Jesus is in the believer and the believer is in Jesus, the law and the dominion of sin has been broken. Understand this, guys. Here's basically what he's saying, is that because of what Jesus has done, because we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, it changes you. There is a difference. See, the only way a person can please God is if they've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Paul describes this. He describes people in two different, two different types of people. Those who walk according to the flesh, those who set their minds on the flesh, and those who walk according to the Spirit. And he's not saying this. He's not suggesting that you can be a Christian and walk according to the flesh. You can keep the pad playing. That's all right. Right? He's not saying you can be a Christian and then you can either, you know, go back and forth. But what he's clear, the context is clearly suggesting is that those who are in Christ do not walk according to the flesh. That's what he's saying. It's clear from the context. That he is saying that the defining trait of a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit is that they walk in the ways of the Spirit. Here's the importance, right? The person is not saved because they walk rightly. They walk rightly because they have been saved. It's like this. Does a car run because it has an engine? Or does a car have an engine because it runs? Well, obviously, it runs because it, have, it has an engine. Likewise, a person cannot walk according to the Spirit unless they've been filled with the Spirit. So to answer your question that we posed a few minutes ago, how do I know if I'm in Christ? The answer is this. Does my life and, the, and my desires reflect that of a person that has been filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Listen to this passage in Ezekiel. It's probably the clearest explanation of the, of the New Covenant that we have in all of the Old Testament since this. Right, because God is basically talking to Israel, talking about how they have profaned his name. They have they have almost they have basically taken the name of God and used it in vain, and they've basically violated his name before all the nations. And he says, I'm going to right that wrong, I'm gonna vindicate my name, vindicate my holiness. And how is he gonna do it? He's gonna do it like this, Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean all, all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will, 
give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Skip a couple verses. This is as this. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your, and your abominations. He says this. How I'm going to vindicate my holiness is this. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you. And when I do that, it will cause you to then walk in a way that obeys me. And then when you look back to your sinful ways of life, you will be convicted and you will hate those former sins. But remember, this isn't spiritual perfection, right? This is the life of a Christian. It's the natural response to being filled with the Holy Spirit, a desire for righteousness and and the power to do it. There's going to be times where we fall back into those temptations. There's going to be times where we fall back into the old ways of, of how we used to do things. But here's the question is we got to remember this, is that when you do fall back into that old way of living, you're like, man, I knew I shouldn't have done that. We go back to verse 1, and we see that there is no condemnation. Be encouraged. So how do you know if, you've been, if you're in Christ? Is there any evidence that the Holy Spirit of God lives within you? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people who claim that they do, and there is no evidence of it. Here's a good question to ask yourself. How much would your life change if the Holy Spirit were to be taken from you? Would your life look any different? If not, you may not be in Christ. I want you to hear this quote from A.W. Tozer, my favorite author. There's two quotes. This is what I'll close with. It says, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would even know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Another quote says this, the Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure.